Hey, Wonderfuls, welcome to episode 426 of the podcast with my absolutely marvelous guest, Chris Gethard. We have known each other for many, many years, and I am so moved and impressed and inspired by everything that he has achieved and shared with the world. I hope you love this episode as much as I love recording it. I think you will. I hope you're looking forward to a good and safe July as we motor through these boys of summer. Enjoy the episode. How are you? How am I? I would say I'm uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. I moved to New Jersey and I have a kid now, so those are very happy things. I know you have a kid. I know you have a kid. I, I saw, I, I'm never, ever on social media browsing in any way, but uh, somehow I saw a profile picture of you that involved you and a, and a baby and a belly, mm-hmm. a baby belly that seemed extremely cute. And I wanted to say congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, he's the best. So that's made everything easier, you know, because been able to hang out every day during this pandemic with a human who doesn't know anything's wrong. And it's right. <laughs> it's a pretty good gift he's giving me. And then on top of it, he's pretty cute. Does cute things. That's that's fantastic. Uh you're moving you moved to New Jersey. I feel like I I feel like I've just seen you recently because I did watch the uh, and I apologize as a kid from Arizona, I've already forgotten the name. Oh, of Action the Park. Treacherous Water Park. Yeah, <laughs> Action Park. That's the one. So I felt like it was a fun, it was a fun preview, uh, a fun recent accidental preview to Chris Gethard's teenage years because I can now, <laughs> I could now drop in at least some moments of uh, abject terror yet excitement that you perhaps experienced while you're at that crazy place. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I think, uh, first of all, that documentary, they just asked if they could talk to me and I didn't expect it to be anything. It's done more. I've gotten like more calls <laughs> about that than anything in my career since my HBO special, which is wild. Cause I'm just telling jokes about like watching people get mercilessly hurt at a water park in the, in the early nineties. But yeah, I feel like um, that place, I think that place is very, very reflective of, of where I grew up and when I grew up. And I feel like you actually met me when I was young enough and I still had that combination of like, like half anxiety, half anger, like a, a very nice guy most of the time. And then all of a sudden would just like fall apart mentally randomly. And I think a lot of it was just growing up there and then when everything was sort of lawless and no one cared right. what happened to us. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've, I mean, I feel like I probably met you like, um, like 20 years ago, almost uh, just about a long time ago. I think it was 2004 was when I was out there. Okay. So it wasn't that long. Close, it was long. I, I, I know, I know we knew, I knew we knew each other and spent some time around each other in 2004, but I thought maybe I had met you through, the UCB, oh, even before that, that's, like in New York. I think but, that's true. I think that's probably true. But when, but you and I both were in LA, like 
suddenly both in LA unexpectedly for our lives uh, right at the same time. I think you had come down. I mean, I don't know if it was you because you were working on, were you working on like crossballs or something? I was something? the writer's you just assistant. just moved and I had just moved. Yeah. And I think we were both kind of shell-shocked yes. as well. So on top of, on top of just being younger and in, uh, you know, being in a point in our lives where things were in upheaval like that, the, the difference between San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York and Los Angeles are both like pretty significant differences. Indeed. <laughs> to where I think we were both like, wow, is this, I guess I just did this. I guess I, I guess I'm here now. Yeah. And I got that job on like, I think, I think I got the job on a Thursday and I was at the office on a Monday and I was like living with my parents in New Jersey on Thursday. Oh no, I, I had my own apartment by then. <laughs> had my own apartment by then. But I was living in, in New Jersey on Thursday and then all of a sudden I'm like in Los Angeles on Monday and, you know, like I'd never been to California in my life. I'd never been further west than Chicago and like still was under the impression that Hollywood was like glamorous and glitzy. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget, <laughs> I went I went to the office the first day and they didn't tell me that production had been delayed I think one day, I think I went Monday and they had forgot to tell me that it was actually going to start Tuesday. They'd switched it. And I was out in front of these like bungalows that were the production offices. And this woman rode by on a 10 speed bike. And in my mind, I'm going, oh, this must be my first coworker. So I smiled at her and she was like, don't you ever look at me again and started like spitting at me. And I was like, what did I do with my life? Where am I? And yes, and that's how we met. And that was me. And that was me. Mm-hmm. I'd taken my teeth out um, because I don't like to have them when I'm riding my bike. Yeah. It, was there, Were the bungalows there just right there next to the studio? Like, because that really is Hollywood proper. Or were you, or was that, were the bungalows somewhere else and then the studio was, because that's right at like Vine and Selma or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was like, like, like right there. I think it was Sunset Gower Studios, if I remember the name oh, right. Sure. And it was like these little yeah. bungalows and then you walk right to the studio. And that was a great, I look back and go, that was a very strange year and hard year. Um, but in many ways, one of the better years of my life and kind of life defining because I took such a big chance yeah. and I'd never really yeah. done something like that before. And then how long did you stay in LA from that point forward? I like don't I can't remember when you went back to New York. I fled pretty quickly. I, I was there yeah. like less than six months in LA. And that's the only time I've lived in Los Angeles in my whole life. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I was just still very young and all my family was East Coast. And I was kind of cooking as a performer in New York. I was like really starting to come up. And like get a reputation. And in LA back then, like UCB hadn't established there yet. So there were things. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. So there were like things like Largo, which I was so far away from. So I was just like, how do I even, I don't know how to get on stage in this town. Everything's either like top shelf or non-existent. So I didn't even understand how to get involved. So I went back to New York and uh, I still wonder sometimes what my life would be like if I had just stayed and been in on like the, I would have been in on like the day one ground floor of, of UCB out there. Totally. Yeah. You no, know, I remember like Matt Walsh and I used to run because we both 
similar to you, we we came at the basically the exact same time and we were there for like a pilot. Our first, I think it was his first. I mean, certainly he was definitely staying with his brother in LA and we would like get together and run auditions as you know like like help each other prep for the many many auditions that I used to get as a person under 30 and um, <laughs> and and I remember the day he was like yeah you know we just uh we looked at we just looked at this theater this old theater kind of right near where you where you live uh like the tamarind do you know it and I was like oh yeah that old that old thing and he was like yeah we're talking about uh I don't know maybe psh, opening a UCB here I don't know and I was I remember going like really wow that seems like a huge chance I mean uh I wouldn't do it like I'm so I'm always so anxious and fearful for other people as well as myself like god I don't know Walsh I mean there's Bar. I mean there's the IO like you're going to compete with with the IO I mean that's where you guys kind of came from and then they opened. It was just a, instantly a smash hit. <laughs> like every show wanted to be at the UCB. And I was like, yep. Just like with television predictions, I'm always wrong. Just always yeah. wrong. Yeah. I I don't regret anything because everything has worked out for me. And I'm really proud of all the stuff I've done. But I'm like. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I go, I bet I would have had just like a more stable and financially secure and less chaotic life in LA but then I sit there and I go well I I don't think those are necessarily things that I would describe myself as like wanting anyway so I try not to overthink it well especially because I mean I don't this is this is probably like a gross way of putting this but I'm sure you've kind of confronted this comedically as well but, you know, obviously for being a person who has had success or, or, or recognition and appreciation from fans for being so forthcoming about, you know, the way chaos shapes a person, breaks a person, can, you know, like lead to the semi-mending of a person, all of that is so kind of intrinsic now to what people recognize as being incredibly special about the way you do comedy and 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 the, and so i can imagine that that in particular with you would be like well wow that really could like if i just became like a mellow like dickhead in los angeles <laughs> would any would any of that would i have felt called to let any of that surface in the way that you did you know yeah yeah i don't think so and i'm really proud of it and um I remember I, I was once talking with Pete Holmes and I was like saying like, I still wonder if I should move to LA. And he was like, you know, he's Pete Holmes. So he's like, Gath, that would be like killing a mockingbird. Like you want a writing staff? Who needs that? There's enough people on writing staffs. We need the public access man. And I'm like, okay, like, That's right. is that, that makes sense. Is that is was your experience with comedy uh, tied to New York uh, so much so that like I mean even as a teenager because you were an East Coaster and you sort of identify as as being an East Coaster and and your family was out there and and that whole experience like did you sort of shape the idea of being in comedy around like exposure to SNL and going into New York and all that Yeah, I mean I started when I started coming in to UCB New York, I was still a sophomore at Rutgers University. So I was taking the train in from Jersey, driving in from Jersey. And I've always just totally identified as a Jersey guy. I take a lot of pride in New Jersey and I just moved back here 
So it always was a piece of my identity. I always felt like it was part of like the chip on my shoulder and the thing that made me feel like, you know, like we all get knocked down. And I felt like that was part of why I got back up, which is so, you know, like that Jersey, like nobody believes in me. We're always second best. Fuck you. Like that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. But even growing up, like I realize now a lot of the people who I admired the most were all New York based. Like I, a lot of David Letterman as a kid, a lot of Andy Kaufman, like, um, and, and a lot of Howard Stern too. Like Howard Stern was inescapable when I was a kid. Everybody where I grew up was listening to him from the start and his old Channel 9 show I used to watch. And I remember they used to play, our bus driver to school used to play Howard Stern on the way to school, which is really inappropriate. <laughs> but so I think, yeah, there's there's a lot of that East Coast in me and I also remember when I was doing the public access show, which was such like such a weird choice and something that I could have been really embarrassed about, but I just had this feeling it was the right move for me. Uh, yeah. I remember when I realized that people were actually starting to pay attention to it. One of the early things that would happen is like walking around in New York, New Yorkers would stop me just because they saw the public access show. And like, yeah. I, I remember one time walking through Washington Square Park and this dude was like, yo, Chris from that show. And I was with my now wife. I think we had started dating then. And she was like, oh, you're like, you're New York's guy. Like New York is embracing you as one of their guys right now. And it was really, uh, it was really, that felt cool. That felt like an accomplishment that I bet you can get that in other cities, but something about it being in New York where nobody wants to like anything. Right. And it would take on weird forms too. I still, one of my favorite moments from the entire, you know, we I did that show for almost 10 years. It was really life-defining for me. But I remember once walking with Dave Bloodband, who played a character called the Human Fish on, on the Gethard right. show. And we were walking to my car and it was parked on this block that was in the garment district, which at night really shuts down. It's kind of like really yeah, it does. quiet, a little shady feeling. And this guy was walking across the street from us and he kind of had a limp. Like he looked like, like a New York like character. And we both had our eye on him cause he's kind of keeping pace with us. And he just starts going, I know you, I know you. And I'm like, me and Dave are both small guys. We're looking at each other like, Oh, this might be bad. And the guy mm -hmm. walks up next to a car and he goes, you're the motherfucking fish man. And he jumped in the car <laughs> and drove away. And I was like, all right, New York City. Like we're starting. <laughs> New York is embracing us. You're the motherfucking fish man, dude. And I always, oh, that's God. one of my favorite memories from the entire that, 10 years. I have to say, I, I felt like I've, I mean, I feel like you just showed me like CTV footage of that is how easy I can imagine that just even putting it in the context of exactly where you were in New York and two things popped into my mind as you were talking about like a the idea of you know sort of being beloved in a city that loves to be grouchy about stuff and and then also the idea of a district at all um first of all I cannot believe how influential the king of comedy was on me as a young person in terms of how i thought of new york city and how i thought <laughs> of 
like show business in New York City and talk shows in New York City. I think to me that was more because because my dad watched Letterman and that was that was about it. And so I sometimes would catch some Letterman if for some reason I snuck out and was like peeking over you know the back of the sofa with him not knowing. Um, but seeing King of Comedy and also seeing it like probably way too young. But <laughs> my dad was just like yeah whatever. And the and that whole sequence of like people owning Jerry, you know, in this lovable way and then just turning on him immediately if he's not present to them in the way that as New Yorkers they feel entitled, like the whole sort of like, Jerry, can I just get my picture with you? Jerry, Jerry, I love it. Can I just and he's like, I can't. She's like, You should get cancer. I hope you get cancer. Um that feels like beautifully I know it's completely fictitious, but I realized like as I got older, like, oh, that's that's how I imagine New York City and its celebrities because that baked in so early. And then also just the idea of districts at all was so sophisticated and exotic and cool to me, having never been to New York until I was in my early, very early 20s and just feeling like, oh, this is like a place of business and industry and there's pockets of the city that really represent this certain thing like the garment district or you know like going into like what does chelsea represent what is you know what are these areas that were industrial that are being taken over and just being like swept away by how special that seemed to me even the the griminess was special in a way that growing up in tucson arizona is not it's just not like that you know absolutely and it's part of why I still am very much in love with being a comedian in New York because I feel like one of the reason that New York one of the reasons that New York comics can get good quickly is because of exactly what you just said because there's so many comedy shows but they all are existing in places that like you said like you might walk 5 blocks and feel like you're in a different town than you were just in so in in a couple nights, if you want to do a bunch of sets, you can you can try out a new joke for like the most sophisticated comedy nerds. You can go do it for a bunch of German and Australian tourists who got tricked into going to a club because they were told Tina Fey was performing that night. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can go do something for like the NPR crowd that's not necessarily looking for comedy, but you can see if it charms them. You can go do a bunch of Jersey and Long Islanders. You can go do like the wackadoo artists up in North Brooklyn you can bounce your ideas off of everybody in such a short amount of time yeah. that I, I think it's, um, it's really remarkable and addictive. And that's part of what I think part of what I had so much fun doing, especially when I transitioned over to solo performing out of UCB was I, I always saw it with Berbiglia and Mulaney were the two guys I was watching when I was coming up where I was going, man, they go everywhere. Like they're not mm. just alt guys, like they're doing the cellar now. And like, they'll bounce around the whole city and do like five different shows that night. And they're five different shows, you know, it's not. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I really wanted that. I really wanted that to be one of those people who could kind of survive anywhere in, in New York. And I think it's only helped me um, artistically. and. I felt like I finally got there. The cellar, you know, which ha- which in recent years, it's become such a confusing place to wonder about performing there. Um, but it really, it is, it is, 
a strong community. I remember that that was the place where I was like, someone like me is not necessarily cut from the cloth that winds up there all the time. And mm. I didn't even ask for an audition there until I was 16 years into comedy. And it was the same week my HBO special came out and Judd Apatow recommended me. I was like, I got to go in here when it's the most likely to succeed. And then I had to follow fucking Ray Romano at my audition. <laughs> wow. And that was like the last New York thing where I was like, okay, like I've, I, once I got past there, I was like, I can serve, I think I've done pretty much every type of show in this town. And that's saying a lot because there's a million types of shows. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors and... Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor and I'm a medical enthusiast and we create... Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. And lately we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. When you were a teenager, because as you said, you started out kind of um, more in the improv world and the sketch world, uh, which is absolutely where, you know, I I guess I sort of started out and stayed. I don't have that. I don't have the, I mean, I guess it could change. I'm not young at all anymore. I guess I could suddenly decide I want to do stand up, but that I never (laughs) had that drive. Um, In part because I wasn't, you know, I mean, I I guess I could have confronted it if if I'd felt the urge to do it, I had the sort of opposite of the Jersey experience that you had, where it is sort of like a, yeah, I might get knocked down, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little scuffed up. I'm going to get up. I'm going to be scuffy. and It's going to be great. And then I'm going to fucking show you. Like, I didn't have it easy by any stretch of the imagination being just like in a town in, in Arizona, but I, but I absolutely accepted failure as like yeah yeah you're you're probably right I'll, I'll never do that again and like right you know right. uh and so the idea of doing stand-up just felt like oh that that will turn me into a person who doesn't want to be alive anymore like I will feel like I you know whatever I have to do to work to be accepted will 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 just absolutely like drive me insane and I will and I will collapse in on myself and just go become an accountant or something and uh, and I didn't have that feeling working in a group setting. I didn't have that feeling in improv, but I just, I felt in my bones like, oh, I, I don't think I could survive that. You know, I think I have too much self-doubt. Perhaps it would have worked the other way and I would have just, you know, become seasoned and sort of toughened up and believed in myself more. Um, but did you have that, like, did you have a, when you were when you were younger, when you were a teenager and you were sort of looking towards comedy um, and, and maybe idolizing certain elements of it. Uh, did it, did you have the sense of like, this could be me or did you have a lot of voices in your head that were like, yeah, but it felt very far away. It did not feel like a thing 
that was done by people who were from where I was from. I, you know, like my grandparents were off the boat, Irish immigrants. And a lot of, a lot of people in my neighborhood were first generation, second generation. Like my next door neighbor was a fireman. My dad, he eventually he wound up, you know, working himself up the food chain. But for a lot of my childhood, he was like managing a factory floor and a pharmaceutical plant and, um, mm. you know, like plumbers on my box. So like, and everybody was Irish Catholic and a lot of those kids went to the Catholic school. And I look back, I'm like, they were just so mean. And, and mm. like anything that could be viewed as like, like pretentious, it'd be like, oh, you think you're so fancy. You think you're better. Like it, it was just everybody kind of like dragging each other down. So I did not really have this idea that being an artist was a thing that was done. And even when I went to school, I wound up going to Rutgers, which is a huge state school. And they have an art school as, you know, it's six, five or six separate colleges under the, the banner. And they had an art school, but I didn't go there. I just went to, I just got like a liberal arts degree. That's how far away it felt where I was like, it didn't even feel like, like I was aware that Mason Gross School of the Arts was right there. And even when I started pursuing comedy, it didn't occur to me of like, oh, you can actually go and have people who believe in you and believe in this as a thing. So very, felt very far away. Yeah. What were you, what were you into when you were in high school? Were you, what was your high school like? Was it also sort of a big kind of blue collar public high school? It was weirdly tough. And now that I'm back in Jersey, I'm reconnecting with a lot of my old Jersey friends. And I sit here and I go, man, I'm probably exaggerating how weird I felt it was. And then I sit and talk with people go, oh, no, we all felt that way. Like there was uh, just like a lot of stuff getting swept under the rug, like a weird amount of violence. You know, it's kind of just like a 90s Jersey high school where they kind of just stuck a lot of people and it'd be like, I always remember, I think back to it now and I'm like, man, there were kids in my lunchroom driving like brand new BMWs the day they got their license. And in the same life, like same lunchroom were kids who moved here from Haiti four months ago who are on food assistance. And yeah. no one's yeah. mentioning this. Like no one is talking to us about this. Like there's no effort to say like, Hey, maybe diversity is a good thing. It's just more, there's the haves, there's the have-nots, and good luck to you wherever you land. And it created a lot of anger, and it was weird. And I was, like, doing the high school musicals, and that was the only acting you could do. And I had this inclination of, like, I want to be funny on stage. And I was hitting a point where I was, like, I don't want to, like, I don't want to, like, sing and dance. I don't want to learn how to do choreographed dances. Like, but that was, like... That's what I thought acting was, was that you had to go be in like the chorus of, you know, a, a music, like Gypsy or something like. Right, right. So I was just very confused. But one of the things that really turned me around was um, there was one teacher who was involved in those plays who pulled me aside and was like, take my drama class next year. And I was like, I don't think this is my thing. Like. I'm happy, like, I was, like, getting these parts, and I was like, I'm, it's nice that I'm getting parts, but I, I, don't, I don't know. She was like, just trust me. And she redid her entire curriculum that year to just be improv games. And this was in 1997. So wow. 
improv was just whose line is it anyway to most of us. And oh, sure. She rebuilt the whole thing just for me, just for me. And I kind of knew it then. And it was, wow. Yeah. It was like, it wasn't like she pulled me aside and was like, this is for you. But I was like, I am aware that this is not what this class usually is. And I remember she took me into her office one day and uh, was just like, look, like, you keep getting in trouble for all your comments and like, you know, she's like, I know half the teachers in this school are very, very tired of you. Uh, <laughs> but she's like, I just. So you were that kid. Yeah, I got to that point where I just wanted to show off and make my friends laugh and could do it. Yeah. And then, but she was like, it, if you want to kind of own it, it might actually be talent, dude. You know, and she kind of put that challenge out there and, and that's. That's kind of why I felt like going for it was actually possible. God, you really had the one, I mean, you know, I've been doing this podcast for nine years and every once in a while uh, there is a person who's like kind of, I mean, not to, you know, pawn it off on literally one individual being that, because there's a lot of stuff that has to go before and after, but to have that person in your education that is like, hey, you, I see you. Yeah, uh, it, that's a big deal. I mean, it really it's, you know, that's that's incontrovertible. I did not have that. But I also didn't have a bunch of people who were, you know, like annoyed with me. <laughs> sort of, you know, I was just sort of sailing down the middle, just very middle of the road. I wish I wish I had just had the smarts to stay out of the way. But uh, I had an older brother who was just a fucking troublemaker. So every class I showed up in, people would be like, hey. I got my eye on you. I'm like, I'm not my brother. Like, I'm a, I'm a much more chill kid. Like, my brother is a very funny, sort of maniacal guy. I'm like, I'm not him. But then after a certain point, I'm just like, all right, fuck it. Then I guess I'll just, I guess I'll just start making jokes. If you're, if you're already gonna be mad at me anyway, I might as well just start, oh, totally. just start being a disruptive dickhead. I guess. I mean, that's you. I mean, that's a that's a statement that can be expanded out to include all kinds of like racism and classism and like. Yeah. We're gonna go ahead and treat you like a thief. So I guess maybe you should be one. Yeah, um, self fulfilling prophecy out in the suburbs of New Jersey. Exactly right. And did anybody? How, how did being in the school musical kind of factor in or fit into the sort of like? Uh, don't be an artistic asshole in it, in that period of time. Well, was anybody saying anything, or was it? Or did you have like a begrudging, like I'm not going to tell in my next door neighbor I'm in the musical? But it was kind of like that. It was like I was sort of like proud of it, and by the end of my time in high school, they were like making me the lead in things. So there was pride there, but I was also like vaguely embarrassed of it, you know, and. I remember too getting my feelings hurt so bad because there was like one band in my in my class, like one punk band that these kids formed. And that was my scene. I was always going to those shows and stuff. And I had these friends and they were in the band and I used to go to their shows all the time. And then they came to the musical and they left at intermission. And I was like, man, I've seen your band like 15 times. You can at least stick around. It hurt me, my feelings bad, but... Right. The only reason something actually hurts your feelings bad is because you're like, oh, because I get it. Like, I know this is right. cheesy. Right. I know this is cheesy. Guys, guys, you don't even know what the Wells Fargo wagon's going to bring. Please yeah. come watch the second act. How can you not want to see the conclusion of South Pacifica, <laughs> a musical about construction workers in World War II? 
Like, how can you not, how can you be 17 year old punk kids who are <laughs> clamoring to know how this ends? So it was like proud of it and people had respect for it, but also like I knew it was, I knew it was cheese. Like I knew it. So I was a little embarrassed by it, but it was the only thing available, you know? How did that factor in with dating? Like, did you, were you dating? And if so, what were the types of girls who were buying into what you were putting out? I did not date much. No one who knows me will be surprised to hear that. But then I, I made a very smart play, which was my junior year. I actually joined the marching band halfway through high school because I found out they needed someone to stand on the side and play a big giant bass drum and a gong. This is 1000% true. And I found out about it and- uh, I love the, I love that, wait, you have to stop. What, how did, when you say you found out about it, the idea that like you heard through the grapevine because people knew you were sort of looking for a new gig, like well, how did that information come to you and, and how did you process that information? Like, whoa, wait a minute. Well, I was friends with a lot of the marching band kids because they were also nerds and like artistic inclinations, right? So yeah, there was some cross, like a lot of the other kids who liked the Simpsons were also in the marching band too. So a lot of crossover. And then what starts to happen is really the only girls who talked to me were all marching band girls. So I was like, this is interesting. Like I'm hanging out with these marching band kids and I kind of bounce. I was sort of like the, even my mom says it to this day. She's like, you were kind of on the fringe of like nine different friend groups. Like I wasn't a yeah, band kid. Yeah. Like I kind of just flitted around the border. Like everybody liked me, I guess, but yeah. Like it wasn't anyway. So I'm like, all this is where the girls who talk to me are. And I had a crush on a couple of these girls over the years. And then one of my buddies was like, you should join the marching band. And I was like, no, thanks, man. Marching around in that uniform and the heat and <laughs> this and that. And he's like, dude, just join sideline percussion. And I was like, what's sideline percussion? He's like, just <laughs> all the instruments that are like too big to march around with. They just stand there. <laughs> I was like, what kind of instruments? And he was like, chimes and gong and stuff like that. And <laughs> I was like, do I have to go to all the practices? And he's like, no, because you don't march. So like, you really only have to go to like half the practices. And I was like, all right. If the, and I was like, and I get to still go to the band camp and ride the bus with the band girls? Like, okay. <laughs> so it was a very strategic move on my part. And I, I did wind up dating um, for a couple of years, like end of my, like, pretty much all of my senior year. And then we also went to college together. We wound up dating the same girl. So my plan worked out. My plan worked out. She, uh, and you had to like, a, and, and when you're in high school and you're with somebody, even for more than like six months, you have, it's like a little mini marriage. It's huge. I mean, just in terms of, you know, like what you're seeing happening around you and, like I, my friends who had long-term relationships in high school, I felt like they were such adults. Even if they weren't adult in other ways that I could observe at all, perhaps I would feel more mature in some other way. I was completely baffled by the idea that you could like have a long-term relationship with, with another person at like 15, 16, 17, even 18. It was unbelievable to me that I wound up being one of those people. Not only because I am who I am, but I was the latest bloomer you have ever seen in high school to the point where people stopped even making fun of me about it and just felt bad. 
I, I, I do not think I grew a pubic hair until well over halfway through my junior year of high school. So that was the other thing. Right. Like, even if I was like funny and like making people laugh and making girls laugh, it's like it hit a point. I remember the first time I made out with a girl, we were like sophomores in high school and she started trying to like put the, you know, put the pedal to the floor a little bit. She wanted to get, get a little hotter and heavier. And I had to stop because I'm like, I can't come on like this in my head i'm like this girl's gonna like reach into my pants it's bald as a baby bottom down there it's, they can't have that like can't have it. and i knew this is before the days of manscaping where you could just explain right like you had dabbled in porn right i could be like i went out and i got a uh a manzillion none of That's that right. it's just like no like and it, but i was even kind of laughing about it where i'm like this is ridiculous like this is ridiculous when are the pubes coming? And even when we met, if you remember, like I've kind of, I think I finally have like, I'm now have been like stressed and tired and exhausted enough in my life due to like professional stuff and parenting that I look my age, but we met, I was still 23 and I still looked like a baby for a lot of my life. I looked like a baby. Yeah. You definitely had, you had, you definitely had the young, the younger kid kid face for sure yeah the, um, the first acting gigs i ever got was i used to get bits on the old conan show and i'd play a high schooler and that way they wouldn't have to hire like an actual child actor and deal with yeah. all the labor laws around that that's not a bad gig it's not a bad gig to be the older guy who looks young or the older girl who looks young for uh a, like a window in your adulthood and then i think from what i hear that gets tiresome like pretty quick <laughs> like, yeah it feels it feels great to get cast because they needed they didn't want a 16 year old and you're 20 and you look 16 and then like within a couple of years you're like okay i'm ready for that to be over now yeah i'd like to at some point be viewed as an adult human being right. at some point right but it was bad. In high school, it was bad. People, I will routinely show, I show pick people, I still have my senior year ID and I will show it to people and ask them to guess how old I am in it. And I am a senior in high school. They will routinely say 12 years old. I've had people legitimately guess nine years old. It's a picture of me when I'm a senior in high school. <laughs> It's, oh, it was no. so bad, <laughs> and it was it went from being depressing to just being like, even like even like other people in my grade, like not even judgmentally, just being like, dude, when are you gonna? When's your voice gonna change? And me being like, I don't know. I'm, I I hope someday. Like like <laughs> like not even being mean about it. Like being sympathetic. Right. It was right. crazy. Did you have? Were you kind of grappling with depression and stuff? Um, anxiety and depression in like a, a, a I don't want to say a real way because that sounds incredibly dismissive I don't mean that in that way but was that something that was like for me as a teenager it was it was pretty front and center for a lot of my teenagerhood and I knew what was going on and part of the reason that I was attracted to you know punks and like goths and all of that and sort of went down that road was because I felt recognized in some way that I that I did not feel in more of a mainstream culture. Um, was that part of the attraction for you towards the kind of punk world? For sure. It's it's a big part of why I was hanging out at punk shows all the time. Um, you know, like I said, just describing all, connecting all the dots. Like I can laugh about being the late bloomer, but when I've also described it as like a weirdly violent high school, it's like, I there's like yeah. a, just a lot of fear and anger. And 
I think back to when we grew up too, and I feel like, first of all, we were constantly being told people were going to kidnap us. <laughs> constantly. That was the entire dialogue of my childhood, was you're going to get uh-huh. drugged or kidnapped. So we were all scared all the time, and then everybody but like but but did was it also like because you because now you know we like being a being in our 20s and and hearing about kids and like kind of getting to know people who actually were parents who are maybe a little older than us like they just weren't letting their kids do anything whereas i feel like we were allowed to do everything but also told that we would be murdered yeah it was like does that make sense yes it was like stop playing nintendo you got to get outside sometime go ride your bike just come back by dinner also, if anyone gives you a Mickey Mouse uh, sticker, don't put it on your skin because it's LSD and they're trying to drug you and kill you. Like, exactly. How, what? Exactly. So I look back, I'm like, I was scared all the time. I was getting fucked with for being like tiny and having the last name get hard. Like the teachers didn't like me because of my older brother and I didn't like the teachers because I could tell they were all kind of hypocrites. Like, so yeah, I was... I felt very, I look back, I go, the, my, my, my parents were actually great and everything in my house was great. It was just everything outside my house. I just remember feeling like scared and angry and exhausted. And uh, I look back and, and there were some, if I had been honest and told people some of what was going on with me in high school, there would have been uh, some pretty major concern even back then. But I, unfortunately hit it very well until just after college. So it's one of my major regrets in life is that I, I did not straighten my head out. And I, I really, my college years were just unpleasant, just unpleasant. And I look back and go, man, if I had taken care of myself and I knew I needed to, if I had done it, I would have had, I would have had just a better time. I would have had, a, I, I know all these people who had such a great time in college and I just uh, really spiraled and, and didn't stop it. So when you say spiral, did like, did, did you do, did you try drugs and drinking and anything and smoking and stuff like that in, in high school or was you hiding the stuff that was going on inside also? And in, like, was that including kind of not doing those things because that would have perhaps triggered something or been too revealing to other people that you like had something going on. That is an astute question that lets me know you have lived through some similar things to what I have (laughs) because yeah, for most of high school, I was like, I need to maintain, I need to maintain control because I can't let my guard down. Not okay. Like not a thing that's going to happen. And then tail end of senior year, I started drinking and even by the standards of high school kids, my friends were immediately like, this is not good. Like, mm. you you have to chill out. Like, anytime we got our hands on booze, I would wind up face down on the floor. Like, it, it, pretty much every time. And then college, um, similarly, I'd go through stretches where I'd be like, drinking is not for me, I can't handle it. And then I'd start drinking and would just have these nights where I blacked out, nights where my, you know, friends would have to like pin me down on a couch so I wasn't trying to sprint out of the house while I was blacked out and Mm. all kinds of crazy stuff. So I actually wound up, uh, I I quit drinking before I graduated college. Um, I just knew, and it's funny, I'm, I'm in touch with a handful of people from high school and college, not many. And I just actually saw a couple of them last weekend. Um, and 
somehow it came up about drinking and my friend's wife was there and we were all joking about it. And I said, I was like, from the day I quit drinking, I was 21 years old when I quit drinking and, yep. and not one of my friends ever put any peer pressure on me of like, come on, man, have a drink. Like all of my friends were like, dude, got your back, whatever you need. Even other 21 year olds <laughs> were like, yeah, man, great call. Great call. You need me to, you need me to go to drive you to a meeting or something. You let me know what you need, man. We got your back. Never drink again. It is a nightmare. It is bad. Oh God. That's amazing. Was that something that was in your family? And I don't oh, mean that yes. in a, every Irish Catholic is an alcoholic, uh, but like I do have some roots there yeah. and it's a fucking disease and that is that that can happen. You can have a drink and go, my body needs this all the time now. It, I fell right into that trap. My, my grandfather was um, a very sweet old man when I knew him, but legendarily he had, he had put, there's like a story that when my mom and dad started dating, one time my dad came to pick up my mom and my grandfather tried to fist fight my dad on their front lawn, like things like that. And yeah. had a few other relatives, one who I am still so, so close with, who I feel such immense love for, who I just watched fall down that rabbit hole, no matter how hard she tried to fight out of it. And Mm. I saw how bad it could get. So that was another thing was like, I, you know, it's like all jokes aside, like I had this member of my family where like I, I was the one driving her to her meetings. Like I was making that joke before, but I can, I, I was making that joke cause I know that's a thing cause I did it. So, and, and like things where like getting arrested and, 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 and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, I, I saw some alcoholism in my family that was where you go, oh, I this is this is a light this is a destroyed life. Like I'm watching right. a person's life destroyed and it's destroying there's like that bomb being dropped is causing waves to hit the shore that are messing with other people's lives too. Uh so I saw it and I saw it in myself when I would drink. And, uh, like I had, I, I had a night that my friends still make fun of me for where I got, I blacked out and started yelling at them. I'm going to die. I'm going to hell. Tell God I love him. I'll never meet God. Cause I'm going to hell and I'm going to die tonight. Like, and this was all just like college kids trying to like drink and have a good time. And then I'm rolling on the rolling around the floor screaming about the devil and God. Like, it's not fun. This was not fun for anyone. Like, not fun for me. And all I did was ruin other people's nights. Like, so yeah. Tell God I love him. Tell God I love him. Some God oh, hell. People like, shut the fuck up. Stop. Why do we even buy you booze anymore? You know, like, why do we even try? Uh yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, um, but like having that sort of at least having sort of put that away and, and had a conversation with booze and with yourself about it at a younger age before like it started interacting with depression. I mean, that's kind of a bullet dodged, right? I mean, it certainly it was for me. Like drinking was not a thing that I, I feel lucky in the sense that 
I always, I, I, I went to a place of just feeling really bad quickly when drinking. <laughs> like getting yeah. drunk means being miserable quickly for me. And so it just, it never, I was never pouring like good feelings on myself drinking. It was always like a quicker ticket towards feeling like, like life was meaningless. Um, and so like for some of the, sh- the stuff that you've gone through a little bit later than that, um, I mean, I have to imagine it was n- at least nice not to go, well, what, I guess we'll go out and get shit faced cause I'm having a hard time sleeping and living with myself. Yeah, it was, it was I mean, it was 100% that it was like, I know that there's something wrong. I'm hiding it from people. And when I drink, it's like gasoline and it all comes out and it's yeah. a bad for me to feel that way and B I don't want people to know that I got this going on inside me so let's pull back on that and uh I feel really I don't want to say I feel lucky in any way but I think maybe one of the things about having stuff hit the fan severely when you're young is you you know when like I think I think so much about man I waited so long to tell anybody what was going on and then I was medicated by the time I was 22. So it was like years that I was hiding it but I still managed to put it on the table and start sorting it out when I had a lot of life ahead of me. And and Absolutely. And that's why I know for a fact that some of the people in my family who I've seen go down the alcohol road that's their self-medication. I know it. Um and they know it too. So I'm just glad that I went and got real medication because it just would have become a crutch and it would have ended badly. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. Strange planets, curious technology, and a fantastic vision of the distant future. Featuring Martin Starr. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Aparna Nancherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. I'm staying. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGivern. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? It's The Outer Reach. Stories from Beyond. Now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. Uh, I can't believe we've been talking almost an hour. I got to take a sharp, sharp turn into my mash game territory. Uh, it puts, a, a, puts okay. a, a sort of a fun and silly spin on the end of the podcast. Um I'll start with an easy one. Three foods that in this reality uh, for you, you're maybe you're allergic to them or maybe it's like, God, I do sort of miss being able to eat like two packages of Oreos uh, and have just, you know, feel a little sick, but that's it. Um, versus or can also be like, oh, the hot dog at so-and-so's like they closed down. I've never been able to get a hot dog that good again. In this reality that we're creating, all of that stuff flies out the window. You can have whatever you want in perpetuity with a snap of your fingers and there's zero ramifications to the planet to yourself to anyone three foods okay this is perfect because i stopped eating meat a couple years ago there it is and uh growing up in new jersey 
there's a strong culture of just like greasy food that will kill you. And it's so yeah. good. And there's a place called Jimmy Buffs in my hometown. And they make these deep fried hot dogs with big piles of potatoes and peppers and onions on top of them called Italian hot dogs. I would have one of those. There's right. a place in Clifton called Rut's Hut that makes more traditional hot dogs, but they fry them in a pool of grease until the skin rips off. And then there's a, a meat that's like a New Jersey specific meat called Taylor ham. That's just awful nitrate filled. Great. Like disgusting mystery meat. And, and I miss those things immensely. So I would have all three go. of those maybe in this the same how, day. This is how the game is played. It's, it's great. Okay, perfect. All right. Next category. Let's do three uh, places in the world that, um, you know, even if you haven't been there, but you just have a sense of a place that you would love, that you would love to have a second home. So that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, just a, a sandy beach. It can mean I want to be busy as hell, you know, walking around Manchester, whatever. Um, second home, three places, and we can sort of teleport you there. So you don't have to worry about sitting on a plane for hours. Great. First, I, I once went to Sri Lanka, kind of I wouldn't say randomly. It was just sort of, it was when my wife and I were trying to have a baby and it was one of the only places that was warm and ha had no Zika the time of year mm -hmm. we were looking. And I did, I had not known much about it. It was the most amazing place I've ever been, the most amazing people I've ever met, the most amazing food I've ever, it was just the best. And there's this city there called Gull that is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's this old fort on the sea, but it's not a historic site. Like There's people living there. I would go live there. I would want to live Beautiful. in that city. Beautiful. That's one. Um, mm, number two. Oh, I, I, I got. I, I went to Ireland, and it spurred me on. I went and got my Irish citizenship through my grandfather, and I, I have always had this fantasy of trying to buy a home in the village he left in 1928. Oh, sure. I don't. I don't know why. It just seems cool. So maybe there. Maybe. In, County Armagh in Northern Ireland. Great. And then the third one, the third one, what would I say? Um, ooh, this is good. There's a few options. There's a part of me that feels like what I'd really want to do, like buy a house where it wasn't even for me to live there. It was for like, like buy a house in a college town and be like, just tell them like everyone who lives here has to be an artist and you have to put on shows in the basement. Like you have to have punk shows in the basement. Maybe I'll live in the attic to keep an eye on things, but maybe I'll just buy a punk house and be like, I got the mortgage. You guys make, make cool shit, be loud. And I won't call the police on you. I, I might want to do something like that. Like start some kind of weird art commune. That's great. In fact, Ooh, that's so good. Okay. That makes me want to do a category that feels like I'm going to put that down for this one, but let's grow that out in in concept and do the next category. Three things like that where you can sort of be a benefactor to, you know, uh, young people who like like art communes, but sort of like get more specific with you can do like a maybe a, a when I mean a where um, if you want to get more specific uh so that you have a relationship to it like that's like because I know that obviously that you've sort of you know dipped a toe into into founding a comedy space so to speak and and uh and fostering you know wanting to foster that in other people so I love the idea of growing that out and doing a category that is kind of like okay we've accounted for your punk house perhaps but maybe we should list a punk house in a certain place here as well because you may not get that other one um 
and I want to double your chances. I'm going to put down the punk house and that you wouldn't have to live in uh, for the first one. Um, ideas on two more. Let's see, because this is a great question. And that's when, when we had the Gethard Sean Cable, like even when it was like limping to the finish line, my favorite thing was getting to hire writers and be like, nice, let's help. So benefactor stuff, that feels good to me. I might want to like go try to create some sort of art space in like coal country, like Harlan yeah. County, like, yeah. like, and, and, and not go in and be like, I want to expose these people to how good art is to, but, but to be like, let's, let's, let's get some, let's get some kids from this town really saying shit from the gut. Yes. Let's see what comes yes. out. Like someplace yes. like that would be very cool. I love that. Um, similarly, I actually have a friend who, strangely enough, does work for like a nonprofit grants benefactor type thing. And she got my gears turning because she, she's actually done a number of like writer's rooms on, uh, on Native American reservation land. Yes. Yes, indeed. And that, Everything she tells me about that, I'm like, that's so cool. That's so yeah. cool. But I can't steal hers. Let's see. Coal <laughs> country. There's a part of me that's always wanted to buy a motel somewhere in upstate New York. And the whole thing, or even better yet, a summer camp. I would yes. want to buy a summer camp. Yes. yes. And I would, I would want yes. it to only be not just for like artist retreats, but events. Like I have this band. Yes. I have these friends that are in a band named Shell Shag and they wanted to do a thing called the Punk Olympics, which was you get all these punk bands together and literally no music. They actually complete, they actually compete in athletic events. Like this notoriously <laughs> unathletic community. That's amazing. Like, I would How wanna, far can just like tapping into pure rage and or cockiness how far can that carry you in an, in an, a physical event exactly like <laughs> how and how far can the the drummer from the soso glows throw a javelin you know like things right. like that like so i i, I would it. i would almost want to buy a summer camp to have like willy wonka-esque yeah. fucked up events oh, that's great that seems fun to me it's great that feels so real and so something that people would very much support and want to be a part of. I love and, that. And then you know what else would be fun just cuz it benefited me so greatly was I would I would enjoy running like a public access level TV station. Great. Maybe maybe curated a little bit more, maybe not public access because there were actual dangerous human beings who hung out there all the time. <laughs> and I would like to maybe have a little bit of an ability to curate uh, one of whom actually sued me in a federal court case that eventually went to the Supreme Court. This is true. No one really, oh this is God. not a thing that people have, like, this is not a thing that has like made any news, but yeah, I was dropped as a, I was dropped as one of the defendants before it went to the Supreme Court. But so maybe I'd run something where it wouldn't be like actual knife wielding people with right. bad intentions are allowed in, but I actually 
when when we were handed a studio with three cameras and call-in capabilities and teleprompters and a lighting grid and just told have fun yeah it, it was like i realized oh like public access is this dead system and really the only time we think of it is because snl makes fun of it right they do like bronx right. talk and wayne's world and stuff but i went in i was like I don't know if I've ever been in an environment that was dedicated purely to enabling creative people to do whatever they want. Yeah. Like public access. And I mean, and I was a part of the punk scene growing up and I was part of the very early days of UCB in New York. Like I've been part of some things that were all about, let's do some fucked up shit and get creative. I think the public access TV studios across the country, people don't even realize like they will give you equipment you could never afford to rent and right. let you, and let you do whatever you choose with it. So maybe I'd run a version of that. I love it. I love it. Okay. I I've replaced punk house cause you might get it. So we have three, uh, oh, gorgeous, I, okay. gorgeous ones. Cause we, cause we, cause listen, we put punk house in a different category. I didn't know you were going to come so alive with all these ideas. So, uh, that that's all perfect and makes sense and is great. Um, I'm going to resist the urge to make you tell me the whole story about the, um, court case. Uh, but it's oh. very, it's very much something I am extremely interested in. And I hope that that information becomes available to me. Wild. I, do you want me to quickly tell you my favorite yes. part? Yes. So when I was doing my, uh, career suicide show, which went to HBO, I did it as an off Broadway run first, kind of like yeah. cut from the Mike Birbiglia model. And I had this little green room at the theater. And one day, thank God someone was there to witness it. This guy who was, a uh, actor and writer on my old TV show, my friend Drew Johnston came backstage with his girlfriend and her sister. And like, we're in this tiny little green room. It's after the show. And all of a sudden this maniac, this woman just barges into the green room. So she like snuck backstage and she has two posters from the show. And she's like, Chris, I need you to sign these. Can you sign these for me, please? Can you sign these? And I was so scared and everybody was visibly like, what? what the fuck's going on? Yeah. So in my mind, I go, okay, this show's about mental illness and maybe this mentally ill person came. I'm not going to be yes. judgmental, but let me just sign these things to get this over with quick. Mm -hmm. So I go, I grab a Sharpie. Okay, who should I make these out to? She goes, just put your name on them. Just put your name on them. So I put my name on them real quick. And then she reaches into her back and goes, and I got you a present. And she hands me this wrapped thing and runs away. And when I opened it, she had served me with court papers. That's how I was served. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess she had me sign the posters because you, when you serve someone, you have to get them to sign their signature to something. And it doesn't have to be the paperwork. It's just something, I guess. This is how this works. So yeah, a, uh, a lunatic barged into my green room and served me federal court papers that referred to me over and over again as white comedian Rick Gethard. And <laughs> just to be clear, the person suing me was also white. It was <laughs> it was wild. Everything about it was wild. And someday I'll tell the whole story. Yeah, please, please. This feels like it's going to be its own show. Uh, its own one, one you show. One you white comedian Rick Gethard show. Maybe that's what it should be called. Maybe it needs to be called Chris Gethard's one, <laughs> Chris Gethard's one man white comedian Rick Gethard show. Listen, it's a mouthful, but uh, that's amazing and also horrifying. And all I could flash to as soon as you made it clear that that was like a like a um, 
what do you call that? I want to say a notary. That's definitely not what it is. But the person who does that, um, who serves and and has to make sure that you sign something is like the amount of like times I've just signed something in an, in an exact situation like that, where I've just been like, sure. Yeah. Just can we get That's... whatever this is? I want it over, please. Yeah, Whatever's happening yeah. now. How do we skip wow. to the end? And it, it was one of those. Was one of those. That's crazy. Um, okay, next category. Let's do three bands, whether they are living or dead, whether they've broken up or are still together, that we can sort of magically transport you to a show um, whenever you want. Oh, I like that. I like that. Well, the first one, I need to be clear. I'm like a notorious, very public fan of the Smiths. So I'm going to say yeah. the Smiths because they never united. I also want to be clear, though. I've given up on Morrissey. He said yes. a number of crazy things lately. So yes, I get it. That being said, if you could get like 1983 era Smiths back together and I could see them yeah. without that baggage, yeah. I, would do, I would do that in a heartbeat. Done. And who else would I put on that bill with them? Would I go with people who've already put on great shows that I know or bands that I've never seen that I want to see. I would see the, I actually missed the Ramones. The Ramones were like wrapping up just as I was getting into the music scene in Jersey. So the Smiths, the Ramones, and who would be another great one to see? Mm. Ooh, this feels like, I don't know why, but this one is making me feel like I have to be care most careful with the answer compared to any of the others. <laughs> the Smiths and their moans. That's already an insane bill. And then maybe I put... Uh, oh. Can you imagine the Smiths and the Ramones opening for a full Bruce Springsteen arena show? <laughs> Let's do that. That would be great. I gotta great. warn you. I've got to warn you. In my duty as a mash administrator, you will only get one of these because it is a sort of eeny meeny at the end where I okay. say these are the things you got. So got just just keep in mind that if you get Bruce, if you get the boss, that doesn't mean that the Ramones and the Smiths open for him. Got I just it. Want to be Understood. Face honest about that. Okay. okay, I'll still stick with it. Okay, great, 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 great. Okay, next category, uh, three movies that you can jump into whenever you want. You're just, you're not reliving the plot. You're just in that world with those characters, like with that feeling all over you, if that makes sense. Love that. Well, first one would be Gross Point Blank because that's my favorite movie and I love it so much. Um, I would put that in there. Oh, I would put Bottle Rocket in there, the first yeah. Wes Anderson, because that movie. If you, if I'm just jumping into the tone, I want to yeah. feel that tone. That's a very weird one. And then, oh, maybe Friday with Ice Cube and Chris Tucker. That feels like an environment that would be very fun to just wander through in some bit part. Yes, yes. Okay, next one. All due respect to your wonderful-hearted, beautiful, fantastic partner in the MASH game. This is an alternate universe romance sure. situation. This can be any era, any person, living or dead, any time. Could be a cartoon, a person from a comic book. Don't care. Three. Okay. Um, if it can be someone from a comic book, I'm going to say Jean Grey from the X-Men. Yep. Set yep. off my lifelong love of redheads. Yep. Um, let's say mid 80s era madonna because i just want to understand what I, I can't imagine right i cannot yeah. imagine what yeah. would happen to me i can't imagine yeah. 
I feel like I'd be covered in bruises and just tossed off a tour bus on the side of a highway somewhere after being used in whatever way she felt like. Correct. And uh, last but not least, let's say any era Helen Mirren. Because you see pictures of Helen Mirren from decades ago and you're like, whoa. And then you watch Helen Mirren now and I'm still like, God damn. Wow. Okay. She absolutely has it. Yeah. She absolutely has it and not in a like, like she has it and she's the age she is. There's no sense of like, it's only because you still seem 40 or whatever. Um, No way. She's got something figured out. Totally agree. Uh, Next one, three people from history who are not alive anymore that you get to sit down with for uh, like two hours in a coffee shop and just pick Mm -hmm. their brain and they're happy to be there and they just want to tell you whatever you want to know. Okay. William Tecumseh Sherman, because he burned down Georgia and I want to understand how fucking crazy he was. That seems like a crazy person. I can't believe he was given so much authority. Let's start there. Um... Let's say maybe Amelia Earhart, but only if I could talk to her in a plane. I think that's a funny image of like being Great. able to f- fly around with her. Great. And oh, this is really good. Maybe Andre the Giant. Can you imagine traveling around with Andre the Giant and all the stories about him? How he could drink like actual gallons of whiskey and then toilets were too small. So he, has to, he used to have to shit on newspapers on the floor. That would be, <laughs> I would love to hang out for a day with Andre the Giant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then final category, uh, three skills, kind of real life skills rather than like superpowers, three real life skills that you would love to wake up tomorrow and sort of have downloaded into your brain matrix style. Mm -hmm. Home repair, number one, because now I own a house and I can't fix anything in it and it makes me feel Mm -hmm. awful. Uh Sheetrocking and plumbing and things like that. Um, I'd I've never done a cartwheel in my life. I'd love to know how to do a cartwheel. Great. I've also never successfully... (laughs) I've never successfully completed a set of monkey bars. Uh (laughs) And at the age of 41... I'm going to say, let's go ahead and say, if I could just nail the monkey bars at one time... I think I'd feel really good. Yeah. (laughs) I've tried to monkey bar as an adult. It's fucking hard. Like, you really don't realize that you are like an ant or some other creature that can, like, lift half its weight or twice its weight or whatever. There's a lot of stuff happening in the jungle gym and on the, you know, just on the playground that you do not realize that it's the closest you will ever get to being a superhero because... Hanging on those monkey bars are it feels like an like a Hitchcockian nightmare where the hallway just keeps getting longer. Like those bars, two bars in, you're like, I can't do this. I've never done it in my life, not one time, even as a kid. Just never, never had the strength to do it. Maybe one time before I die. Maybe one time. Love it. I think it's a good use of the category, to say the least. All right. What, uh, how would you describe your mood when you woke up this morning if you just had to pick a word? Charmed. Great. Because I woke uh, up with the baby. That is beautiful. 
Um, while I figure out which of these things in each category you will end up with in your 100% guaranteed alternate universe future, uh, will you please tell people about your new special and all of the other wonderful and sundry things that they should and probably already know about um, if they're regular listeners of my podcast? Uh, but just in case, let's get it out there to them. Sure. I have a new special out. It's called Half My Life. I filmed it at 10 different venues at the tail end of 2019. It's got a lot of stand-up, a lot of stories, and then also a bunch of footage in between of just kind of what it looks like. Like All of these venues are smaller. Most of them are DIY. It's just kind of like low ceilings, intimate rooms, the kind of comedy that I like to do and that when we go out and see comedy... You're like, yeah, that's put it in there. Put it in like some tight, packed music space, and it's a lot of footage of weirdness erupting at shows. A audience member getting on stage and wrestling me, uh, doing a show at nine feels in the right, morning. Feels right. Yeah, a pancake show at nine in the morning. There's a bunch of footage of me doing stand up for alligators. A bunch <laughs> of like, a bunch of like near nervous breakdowns about how long am I going to go on the road when I have a kid at home. So it's got a lot of stuff going on and I think people might like it and definitely a lot of the jokes and stories I've been working on for years and uh, I also kind of hope people want to go check it out because I think as we come out of the pandemic, it's a good reminder of what it looked like in 2019 to be going to yes. shows and in those rooms. So, And three yep. of the venues, sadly three of the venues uh, out of the 10 have shut down. Um, I was wondering, to, I was wondering, yeah. as, I was, as I was reading about the special, I was like, oh no, I wonder if, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's really stinks, but I'm actually happy to get footage of them because I feel like a lot of places like that kind of just come and go and yeah. yeah, it'll be streaming, you know, you can get it on all the places, Apple and Amazon and YouTube and even Tubi, even that weird one Tubi that's even on your Tubi. Roku. Yeah, that one you never opened called Tubi. It's on there. <laughs> Uh, fantastic. Um, I have finished, uh, I do have your results. Um, I guess people can go to your website too for other things, right? Cause I don't want to cut you off, but that, oh, I guess yeah. the, the purpose behind this conversation was definitely to get the word out about the new, the new, that's the, yeah. And then there's TV. other stuff, chrisgeth.com for the tour dates. And I run this online comedy platform, Planet's Gone. There's a bunch of stuff you can go, yeah. you can go check yeah. it out. Yeah. You guys do that. All right. You ready for this? I'm feeling pretty good about this. Yeah. I'm feeling pretty good about this. Uh, where do I want to start? First of all, I want to say uh, the idea of you having a conversation uh, over the sound of a much earlier version of an airplane engine <laughs> as that... you pick Amelia Earhart's brain yes, is yes, yes. extremely appealing. You did get that. I'm very excited about that. Uh, after you have that experience and you've been in kind of a confined space uh, for some time and you just want to let loose, I want you to rest assured that you can uh, dance it all out, slam it all out at a Ramones concert. Um, a bit, how, however big or small you would like uh -huh. that show to be, you absolutely can go enjoy that. Afterwards, feels to me that you're probably going to want uh, some Rutz Hut hot dogs. Uh, get some of that deep fried goodness into your belly, probably in the middle of the night, which I think might be a good way to experience it. 
Um, if you decide you want uh, an adventure that stretches beyond the things I've just described, rest assured you can jump into the movie Friday, whatever you want. Ooh, this is and great. hang out with those fine folks. Uh, you also can go to your second home in Gaul, Sri Lanka. Oh, I love this. So that's a real departure from uh, everything else. It feels like a, qui- a nice, quiet space. Um, you will be doing that with your partner, uh, the multifaceted, fascinating, and redheaded Jean Grey. Yes. Uh and then you also, oh, and yeah, by the way, mansion, apartment, shack, house, that's why it's called MASH. You have a shack in Sri Lanka. Uh, to me, that feels right. Like, what are you going to have some gross, yeah. pretentious mansion? No, you need like a humble abode for this historic and beautiful little place. Uh, so I forgot to throw that in there. Now, you also founded uh, an art space for uh, sort of a rough and tumble area somewhere in coal country. Coal miner. Um, I love this is landing on all the ones I was hoping. I'm telling you, this is why MASH is magic. Uh, You've done that and absolutely had to save perhaps the most important for last, my friend. Yes. In fact, you will complete a set of monkey bars. Yes. I can die without that great white whale (laughs) hanging Tell God I love him. And I did the monkey bar. <laughs> rolling on the rug. 20-year-old yes. Chris Gethard. Yes. Uh, this was so fun, and it was so great to talk to you and to get you for this length. Um, this, is, this was really, really nice. I hope I get to see you in person in January. I think that feels like it could be a possibility, at least on our end of things, and that's something that uh, I'm, I'm very much hoping for. Oh, I would love it so, so much. All right, everybody. Well, listen, I'll talk to you next time on the podcast. This is my last and final thing. I always forget to say this, but I do only interview gentlemen in the summer. Uh, Steve Ag helped me pen it, uh, the Boys of Summer series. And to that end, uh, lo these many years, I do invite people to sing a snippet of Don Henley's Boys of Summer or whatever made-up version they think might have been Boys of Summer if they so are inclined. Otherwise, I also invite people to sing a snippet of a song they associate with Summer. Let's see. I can't place... I know I've heard Boys of Summer a hundred times, but it's never... It's not my thing, so I'll just try to fake it and say that it probably goes something like, Beware those boys of summer. Cha-cha-cha-cha. Beware. Those boys of summer, they're such bad boys. That is hands down a better version of the song than the actual. So (laughs) I thank you for that. I thank you for that, my friend. Um, All right, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Uh, Things are looking up. We like that. I will talk to you next time on the podcast. The show is recorded by me and edited by Julian Burrell. And as always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi. Hey, remember when we could save kittens from trees Or lunch on skyscrapers Bring the villains to their knees Maybe we should Someplace new and build time machines.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.